A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. The greatest trick the flanker ever pulled was convincing the world didn't place kick. You're all very welcome to the Monday Second Captain's Podcast. Murph gets it. Hi, Ken. How are you? Hi, hello, how are hello. you? John Muldoon played 327 matches over 15 years as a Connacht player. Yes. And only in his final appearance did we learn that he possesses the truest strike of a ball seen in Galway since the days of the great Potter Joyce Murph. Mm. His teammates gave Muldoon the platform by administering a damn good thrashing to the answer of the sports ground. 47-10, Ken. Seven tries to one. Some mm. of those scores, things of real beauty, and an understrength Leinster team, but still with some a smattering of star quality there. And it was after the last try that Muldoon stepped up to take the conversion, much to the amusement of the crowd and the TG Car commentary team. Well, Tanda Humodius, the Lamportunda, Kidian, the Sean Muldoon, the Sharon de la Rory, Kugeline, Bogashir, Magistrat, Sean Muldoon, Kareesh, Kafin, Sakikal, That, my friends is a man giving the crowd what they want. Mm-hmm. They came here to see Muldoon. They didn't know they were going to get the bonus of a conversion, but they got it. bit disrespectful to the Leinster Lions. Interesting you bring up that angle, Ken, because a couple of Leinster players didn't look too happy. In mm. fact, they tried to charge it down. Um, Keen Healy, in particular, went hard to try and block that kick. And it didn't matter, obviously, points-wise. It didn't matter if they lost by another two points. Mm. So they mightn't be too worried if it had been the out-half kicking mm. it. Jordan Larmer, I think, also ran at it. Ran Come pretty on, hard to try and stop it. What? Jesus, like, well, you're, it's what's the difference? Disrespectful. They're lions, not men. So hmm. it's pretty disrespectful to lose by thirty-five points or indeed thirty-seven points. If you could argue that the team selection, I'm assuming, disrespected the competition. Uh, I don't know what <laughs> a lot the of team disrespect was, being doled out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, Guardiola said something about this. Uh, I think someone said, "Oh, do you fancy if you get a penalty, maybe Aderson could take it? Then everyone would have a go." I think maybe yeah. everyone scored, and he said, "No, it would be totally disrespectful to do that." So uh, I see this in the same category. Well, do apologise, Ken. So you'll be glad to know he's apologised to you personally as a Leinster man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he might have picked out your name. I can't remember. We don't a know lion, that kid. Oh, but, but he did say, yeah, completely unprompted at the end of his post-match interview, he said, "Oh, by the way, I just want to say uh, I apologise for that kick. It wasn't meant in a bad way." And this sense of showboater's guilt is something that afflicts rugby players from time to time. Teddy Tama, not so much. Mm. He seemed happy enough. He didn't. I didn't see him coming out with any apologies for throwing the ball to his scrum half to dot uh, that try down a couple of weeks ago, but. Uh, last week I should say but a couple of years back George North in 2013 this is on the Lions tour listen to this quote looking back I do feel horrendous about doing it but I'll have to live with it 
I'll have to take it on the chin. I had big words from Andy Irvine, team manager, which was fun. Sarcastic, uh, sarcastic mm. fun there. Rugby is a gentleman's game, and that shouldn't be involved in the game, what I did. And Andy spoke to me about that afterwards. I know I was out of line in terms of sportsmanship and rugby, and I feel bad about that. What did he do? What did he do, Ken? He only went and wagged his finger in the face of a trailing Will Genye as he tried to tried in vain to make the tackle on George North, who was going over for a try in the test match against Australia. So that was that was what he felt this, so bad about. That he as felt he, as he was literally yeah. scoring straight, as he evaded the tackle. He's he, streaking away scoring one of these great George North type tries. Yeah. Ganea's uh, quick enough, he's, he's a scrum half, but he's yeah. not going to catch George North, let's be honest. And if yeah. he could, he's not going to be able to tackle him. Yeah. So George North knew he was going to score. Ankle tap. Turns around, he could ankle tap, but he wasn't didn't quite have the angle to ankle tap. And North knew that and gave him the old... <laughs> Not today, buddy. Yeah. As he dotted down. Why do I keep saying the word, the, the use the phrase dotted <laughs> down that I've never used? They, they use that in. I'd never know. heard it before, actually. Yeah. So he, <laughs> that's how bad he felt after the game that he felt. Oh uh, I God. say own your showmanship, guys. Yeah, like, for God's sake. I, don't, I don't see the problem with that at well, all. Well, there isn't a problem with it, Ken. That's, that's the problem. There yeah. is no problem with wagging your finger uh, at someone. I, I think the Muldoon thing is, is in a different category. I think that is quite outrageous. But the wagging the finger, that's just, that's just what people come to see. The Muldoon thing is not. What words did you use there? I think it's outrageous. On a different planet. Yeah, outrageous. Yeah, no, I don't think it's outrageous, to be honest. There's an unwritten code in rugby. Yeah, there is, yeah. There's loads of those. I hope you're not going to leave this segment without mentioning Gary Halpinone. Oh, yeah. Got up, all up in the grill he of showed a few those New all blacks. didn't he? Just well, before he they ran in. He up his middle finger at them. What? When Gary Halpin scored, and somebody, you can correct me if I'm wrong, he scored the first try... Yeah, yeah, we were Ireland put us in the lead, yeah. In a very strong position. In the World Cup, I believe, was it? In the World Cup? Yeah, yeah 95, yeah. Gary Halpin goes over for an early try for Ireland. Ireland 5, New Zealand nil. Yeah. Halpin turns around, turns to the New Zealand pack and gives them two middle fingers. Final score, New Zealand 45, <laughs> Ireland 10 or something. <laughs> but, uh, well, listen, you know, maybe he thinks... How many, you times, you, you how many take, times have I got to... Well, in New Zealand, media and players have been disrespecting Ireland before the game. It was within his rights. You take the opportunity when it comes. They were right to disrespect us. <laughs> going by that final scoreline, I think it, they were right to disrespect us. We're going to talk to Shane a little about that and mostly about the state of Ulster as they find themselves scrapping for a place in the Champions Cup after a pretty shocking second half against Munster. A little note here for you non-members in particular listening. You guys missed all of our Champions League coverage last week from Tuesday on, which included not only the highlight of our World Service Week, but possibly of our entire second captain's existence as we employed the cutting-edge Champions League weekly voice technology to translate the Arabic commentary of Mo Salah's first goal against Roma last week. What is this, O Salah? Sultan of the English Premier League. This is him, star of the Egyptian game, the pride of the Arab game. Perfect. Perfect. A boy for all the Arabs, with feet of gold. My days, my days, my days. Oh Salah, you are world class. Goal of the season, goal of the season. With his left he struck it, top bins he placed it. Top bins, top bins, no mercy. My days, you are fabulous. Pride of the Arabs, give us your art, give us your madness. Their torturer. Their tormentor, Roma, inspect the damage. Ah, oh, I could listen to that all day. And a big hat tip to at Isam underscore LFC on Twitter with the original translation, which Ken built around there. 
Inspect the damage. <laughs> inspect the damage. A boy for all the arrows with feet of gold. Inspect. I'm going to start incorporating inspect the damage into my everyday lingo. I like it, Murph. If you want more of that, and if you want to see how Liverpool fare, well, let's be honest. You don't have to sign up to the World Service to find out how Liverpool fare. That's not. That's a false. That's fa- it's fake advertising right there. You can find out this result. You, you can watch the will. entire game without signing up to the World yeah. Service. But if you want all the best analysis, both before and after, and right through the week, then join up to the World Service on secondcaptains.com for just uh, five a month. Katie Taylor became a unified world professional boxing champion at the weekend by significantly outclassing the IBF champ from Argentina, Victoria Bustos, as part of a big Brooklyn boxing show in New York in the early hours of Sunday morning. She was absolutely sensational, as sharp as I've ever seen her in her professional fights. Technically, she looked better than ever. And as usual, when it came down to a brawl late on, she said, okay, sure, we might as well brawl, so I'll give the fans a little bit of what they came to see. It was really impressive stuff, but there was very little build up in the media here certainly and even since the fight while there have been plenty of congratulatory messages and short reports and all that kind of stuff I don't get any sense that Katie's achievements in the ring professionally are capturing the imagination to anything like the extent they did when she became an Olympic champion but have a listen to this what I think is the best women's professional prize fight I've ever seen between Katie Taylor of Ireland in the black with gold and Victoria Bustos of Argentina in the white with blue Roy Jones, they both came in carrying titles. This was a title unification fight, and it was a pitched battle all the way. Yeah, it was, and Katie Taylor really showed us why she's one of the pound-pound best female boxers on the planet. And like I said, I agree with you, Jerry. Like you said, this was one of the best female fights I've seen in my whole career. Commentary from HBO, including the legendary Roy Jones there, who saw Katie for the first time. Unfortunately, the U.S. audience didn't actually get to see any more than that because HBO decided not to show the full fight live just that 30 second clip so I'm not sure how much of an impact she's going to have made in the US out of that but the bigger question that we want to address is here at home the reality of the fight seemed to be that there didn't I didn't get any sense of any great anticipation in the Irish media or among Irish sports fans coming up to it and not exactly a a blow away Twitter reaction when it was on considering this was a world title fight between two uh, holders of two of the belts Michael Foley is going to address some of this now Michael how are you? Good how are you? Do you get a similar sense that there wasn't a massive uh, sense of anticipation or there wasn't a massive sense of of occasion in Ireland that this is a great sporting event that everyone should be tuned into? <laughs> no, 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 they weren't putting out the bunting for this one, yeah. that's for sure. Um, no, uh, it's 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 tough. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's tough for her. I suppose she's, for a bunch of different reasons, I mean, she's sort of, I suppose she's in a profession that is... It's quite young relative to a lot of other professional sports and even men, male professional boxing and all. You know, it's it's sort of still still lagging behind a little bit in terms of profile and all that. I mean, obviously Katie has her own profile here, but uh, it's it's a difficult one for her. You know, she's fighting in America at a you know crazy o'clock in the morning, um, so she wasn't going to get a huge TV audience. One way not or the other, not that crazy here, though, know? not that crazy though, Michael. The the sky coverage started, if I remember correctly, at two o'clock. Now I, I recorded, watched it first thing in the morning, but uh, it started at two o'clock, and she was the first fight up. Mm. So um, Irish sports fans and fight fans in particular are used to having to stay up till five in the morning or get up at that time to watch fights. So I I, I, I take your point. It's not a, an event at seven p.m. on a Saturday evening, but it's there and it's not pay per view. It's free for people to watch as long as they have a subscription to Sky. Yeah, it's a fair point, I suppose. Like, I mean, I suppose if 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 uh, for the dedicated boxing fan, um, but I suppose look, the reality of the Katie Taylor story in Ireland in particular is that, you know, she it wasn't because she was a boxer that she kind of captured an audience. You know what I mean? I mean, that was part of it. Obviously, it was her achievements as a as a boxer, but it was 
kind of as much the story, the personality behind it and all the rest of it that sort of drew people in, that endeared her as much as anything to the nation. Um, so, you know, when it kind of, it's like anything, it's like any kind of a bandwagon effect, really. If it gets a bit awkward at all, I think, you know, people will people will uh, pull their punches, as it were, in terms of in terms of the effort they make. But why it's is a it, difficult what, one. Why, why is it, oh, it's got, as in it's gotten awkward for people to, more awkward for people to watch, is that what you mean? Yeah, pretty much. Like I mean, in fairness, I suppose when when she was at least she, at least when she was on the undercards in the UK, you know that was ex, you know that was much easier just time wise. I mean, I take your point. Two o'clock in the morning isn't extreme, but I suppose <laughs> coming from the point of view of having a couple of small kids, the two o'clock in the morning may as well be four in the morning. You know, mm. um, it's it's sort of it's really how much of an effort you're going to make. I think the other thing as well, and probably a much bigger thing is the reality that I suppose as an amateur after a while we all expected Katie just to win and that that kind of assumption has kind of jumped across to the professional game as well I don't think there's any huge shock that she's unifying the titles and particularly at the speed at which she's doing it you know I mean she's she hasn't had a lot of professional fights and she's already pulled two two of the belts together with with two more to go so you know there's nothing I suppose there's nothing surprising going on. Like if you got into if you got into a bit of bother against somebody, or you know if uh, if there's just something else happening, um, they might you know it might be easier to or more possible to draw more more of an audience and more more attention and stuff like that. But it's been very straightforward. She's also, I mean, in fairness to her, she's winning fights in a very efficient and in much in the same way as she won her amateur fights. You know what I mean? It's not it's not fireworks. There's, it's you know she's not blowing people across the ring or anything like that. Which again, in the professional game, you know you have to put on a bit of a show. But a show was never part of Katie's makeup, really. Um, even in terms of dealing with the media and all that, um, she would you know I, God, tis what now? Tis ten years since I sat down with her in Bray, and she was lo- like such such a lovely girl. And this is kind of before things really took off for her. Um, really driven and all the rest of it. But you know, quite self-conscious. I remember at that time. I think she had just been on the late, late. I think they might have asked her to go on and analyze some Olympic boxing on RT in 08. And she kind of said no. And then she might have gone on then after us. But, you know, it was all very reluctant. She's very shy. And, you know, she even remarked, I think, after the fight the other night that, you know, where she's training out in Connecticut, she can go and train. And then when she goes outside the training camp, she can just kind of disappear into the crowd, which suits her down to the ground. Like, yeah. Um, but unfortunately, as a professional female boxer, you could do it being a bit more outgoing in that regard. But look, that's not going to be top of her agenda as a boxer, you know? No, and I totally take the point outside the ring. Um, that's just the personality she has. She's not going to suddenly become yeah. Conor McGregor, and nor should she. I think a lot of people would no. probably argue there, there as well. I would take issue with what you say about her fights, though. I mean, the, the fight on Saturday night was... Yes, she's expected to win, and we don't know. It's it's so hard to judge the depth of quality in women's boxing because we're just not used to watching it over the years. But in terms of the performances she's putting on, she, like she was, she boxed beautifully, absolutely beautifully, even by her own lofty standards for the majority of the fight the other night. And when it came to it, in I think it was round eight, and certainly in the final round when her opponent wanted to mix it up, she did what she does, and I don't know if it's what her trainer wanted to do, but she did actually stand there and trade punches. And seemed happy to do that. That's mm. what we were all so excited about when she burst onto the Olympic scene in that fight against Jonas back in the day that she actually will stand there and go toe-to-toe. I, I don't feel she can do any more than she's doing inside the ring. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I'm not, like, look at, she's, even looking at her physically and everything else about her has gone up levels, you know? There's no question about that. I, it, look at, it's always down to the opponent to try and, 
to, to try and pressure her and make her make her feel uncomfortable in the ring and, and make a fight out of it in inverted commas. She's going great. I mean, the fight the other night, she pretty much had it done and dusted, and Bustos had to come out and really go for it in the eighth, and, and you know, did well. Um, but I mean, you know, it's it's just and as you say, the depth thing is a bit of an is a bit of an issue. I mean, Bustos had never fought outside of Argentina. Uh, the WBO champion from Brazil hasn't fought outside of Brazil. Um, but they're, and they're talking about bringing her to to England in July for for the next title fight. So you know that's kind of that's going to play in Katie's favour, obviously. I mean, the one really the one that I suppose even back before she when she was really starting out as as a professional, you were kind of waiting for will be the probably the last one, which is the WBC title, which is against Delphine Persoon, mm. who's a Belgian fighter. She's thirty three, she's forty wins, only one defeat. She's been going a long time, um, and you know she's. She is probably that. That is the fight. Like that. That is the fight for Katie, in terms of of uh, kind of really, really, you know, nailing down her credentials. But like as you say, um, you know, I mean, when you hear you know the likes of Roy Jones Jr. speaking so well of her and and, and other commentators, it was unfortunate actually that it didn't get shown on HBO the way it worked out. Yeah. But uh, you know, when when you see people talking about her in, in the way they were, there's no question her work is very, very good. It's just trying to, it's just trying to translate that. Translate that to a wider audience, I suppose. The wider audience they seem to be trying to translate it to is the American and especially the UK audience. I'm at a bit of a loss to work out why there hasn't been a fight in Ireland. It's been mooted the whole time since she, since she started. Oh, there'll be a homecoming and so on. But it doesn't seem any closer to happening. And normally that would be for one of two reasons. Either they don't promoters don't feel the fight would sell very well, which I don't know, I'd be, I'd be surprised about. Or secondly, that they feel... The, there are bigger TV markets, obviously, in other countries. But you've got this person who's an absolute superstar in her home country could put on a professional show. Any any theory as to why that hasn't happened yet? Yeah, um, always theories on loads of theories. Yeah, great, that's why we have you on, Michael. <laughs> Good man. Um, no, I think I think maybe from the point of view of the first ask of why you're going to Europe, America, or you, the UK, America. Pardon me. I could well be that. You know, they were saying, look, we can put you on the undercards. You get to fight in Wembley. You get to fight here or there or whatever, right? That's, so that's one part. We'll try and break you in America. Barclays Centre is, really, is really developing a good reputation as a venue now for, for good boxing. Um, and as I said, they were unlucky with HBO. And I think some of the, some of the earlier fights uh, dragged on a bit. Um, so she got caught then. She got caught. I think it was like 60 seconds of highlights or something like that. Mm. The other thing, though, in terms of having a fight in Ireland... Um, Quite apart from having Katie Taylor as your headline act, you did also need some class of an undercard. Now there are plenty, there are plenty of good Irish fighters out there, but one issue would be that a lot of them are fighting for MTK. Mm. So we are now, as people may well know, we are in the teeth at the moment of uh, quite apart from MTK's media ban on Republic of Ireland journalists covering their fights, getting accreditation for their fights, they're also not allowed to be involved in events in the Republic. So, I mean, that is that that would be an issue in terms of just trying to fill a decent, viable undercard that would help to fill the place. Now, I, I take your point. You would you would probably get very close to filling it with Katie. But, you know, you do need a good, decent undercard underneath it to make the whole thing kind of sing, you know. Um, so if they could, I mean, I would, I would say that would be a theory. But I think it's a, I think it's a reasonable theory that that the issues with MTK probably aren't very indirectly helping Katie in terms of having a home fight. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And just on that, if people aren't following that too closely, you you say that they're not allowed that MTK are not allowed to have fights in the Republic of Ireland. Is that self-imposed, 
or is that down to to insurance issues, which supposedly they had trying to put on a fight uh, a few months back? Yeah, well, I mean, the after the the event when before they changed hands the, with the shootings at Regency Hotel and that there was a, there were there was a limit put on what they can do. So part of it is they just can't fight in the Republic at the minute. So um, right. That is a major issue for them. So, uh, so that's a bit of a, that is a bit of a difficulty. And in terms of Katie, you know, just getting, as I say, getting a viable undercard. No, you I mean you can look beyond those. I mean, there's a lot of very good fighters out there um, that could come in and fill out an undercard for Katie. And you know, you'd like to see. You'd, I mean, I think it would be fantastic for her. It's probably one of those things. No more than Frampton and Windsor Park. I'd imagine that she must really, really want to have a, a fight at home to kind of round off all of this because you know. I suppose her professional career has a limited shelf life as well. I mean, she's she's in her 30s now, so, you know, it's kind of box ticking now. Get the four belts before the end of the year is a, is a big thing for her, and I'm sure a big fight at home will be part of the whole thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the Belgian fighter. This wouldn't be in Ireland anyway. The WBC champion, Delphine Pearson, who's uh, going to be the big one at some stage, you would hope. She has a quote which says, I will soon defend my title against the Irish girl. I once boxed for a world title for free. Katie has already boxed for an amount in six figures. So while we're talking about the Katie thing not quite taking off in Ireland in the way that we thought it might and not capturing the public imagination, Katie herself is obviously doing, seems to be doing so well out of it actually that other fighters are probably quite envious of what she's she's being able to do for herself. Absolutely. Apparently, there was, I, I haven't seen the sum, but apparently the, the, the sum for the fight on Saturday night, she got a six-figure sum when she when she fought just before Christmas in London. Apparently, the one the other night exceeded that again. So, I, you know what? I'd say a lot of people would be very pleased for in that regard alone. That, you know, after years and years, even as an amateur, of kind of fighting against the curve and, you know, battling battling even to, to like, hope against hope that, that women's boxing will become an Olympic sport, then it does become an Olympic sport and so on, that she's getting the rewards out of it that she deserves. Um, yeah, I think Pursun is due to defend sometime in June, so she'll have that. That obviously won't be against Katie, but uh, that'll be her next one, and then she's she's up next. I actually did. It was there was a look on Victoria Bustos's face at the end of the fight um, when you know it was confirmed that Katie had won. That it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of a lot of amateur fighters you would have seen back mm-hmm. the years that lost to Katie. And I'm not questioning for a second the validity of Katie's victory, but the sense that there's a certain inevitability about Katie just winning and going forward. And that's down to both her ability, but also the amount of money that's being invested that she's, you know, that there's a sense that, you know, she's so, she's so well paired. So everything that she has to win, that she just has to win and she's going to win. She's winning these fights comfortably. So there's no question from that regard, but it was just, it was just a look on Victoria Bustos' face that said to me, she, she, you know, regardless, she, she never, maybe she never really believed she was going to win anyway. If she was to fight in Ireland, if they managed to get over those complications that you talked about, uh, do you think she would shift tickets? Do you think that would knock away a few of the complications that you talk about for people who might be able to use it as an excuse not to be interested? This is a long-winded way of asking whether she still has that uh, popularity, you think, in Ireland that could actually um, that could create a, a massive boxing event were she to fight here. I don't know. I, I think she'd, go, she'd, she'd sell a lot of tickets, no question about it. I don't know, like, I'm not sure any, I mean, you look at some of the, some of the other big name fights in the last little while, you know, it's, it's hard to sell out a boxing event, you know, mm. you, that's what I'm saying, you need a good undercard underneath it, and you need those sort of, you know, 
fighters that bring a good local crowd even with them just to just to prop the whole thing up would she would she feel where would you have it like i suppose you'd be talking about the three arena really yeah that would be the um, obvious one yeah i mean she probably i mean she'd be she'd be a viable headline act but i do think she'd need a good uh charismatic if you like strong undercard underneath that would be that would be drawing its own crowd as well um like boxing is a boxing is a funny thing you know it's it's event driven um and it's got very strong roots in ireland but it does need big, strong characters always out front selling itself and pushing it along and, you know, people telling good stories and speaking well about themselves. I mean, I think I think to to really, you know, sell out an event in Ireland, she, she would need to come out of her shell a little bit, do a little bit more in that regard. Um, but I'm sure I, I would imagine she'd, she'd be more than willing at that point. I mean, we're, we're talking really about an Irish fight probably after she has these belts all unified, if she unifies them. Mm. Um so at that stage, you may be in a different space in terms of kind of sort of selling a fight and yeah. and sort of you know pushing it on in a different direction. Yeah, that makes sense, Michael. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks so much. No problem. It's a hell of a tournament so far. Listen, Luke Jensen, ESPN. Great to talk to you. Glad you're enjoying it. Own, you're amazing. <laughs> Own, you're amazing. Own, you're amazing. Own, you're amazing. Owen McDevitt. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. The Murphy Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captain. Those guys are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking soccer. Oh, you're amazing. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Owen McDevitt. Oh, you're amazing. Oh, you're amazing. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Just regarding the issue around putting on shows with MTK fighters in the Republic of Ireland, which came up there, this is the company that was originally called MGM. It was co-founded by Daniel Kinahan along with Matthew Macklin in 2012. As of October 2017, the current CEO, Sandra Vaughan, became the sole shareholder in MTK. Now, from MTK's side, they've said that as well as a media ban where their fighters won't talk to any Republic of Ireland-based sports media, their fighters will also not be allowed to box in shows here. This is due to what they feel is an Irish media bias against them. A lot of it's centering around suggestions of links to the criminal world. Uh, the reality is that the prospect of their fighters getting on a card anyway is very difficult. Because back in 2017, the Boxing Union of Ireland, acting on the advice of the guards, made a call not to sanction any boxers fighting here under the name of MTK. Mel Crystal, he is of the BUI, the Boxing Union of Ireland. He says the reality is that the presence of an MTK fighter on a bill at present in the view of the Boxing Union would put at risk the safety of patrons and other persons involved in the boxing event. It's as simple as that. End quote. The Boxing Union said they would review the situation on an ongoing basis and five MTK fighters were actually due to fight on a bill at the Red Cow in Dublin, albeit that wasn't an MTK promotion. But uh, that was that, that was a show uh, a number of months back that was cancelled by the hotel when the promoters had trouble getting the appropriate insurance. This wasn't long after the shooting outside the National Stadium in January. So just a bit of background there, essentially, to outline 
how running a big professional fight in Ireland at the moment is not a very straightforward business. Regarding the general question about the reception that Katie's pro career has gotten, um, it could be that you're listening to this following Katie's every fight with rapt attention and wondering what the hell we're on about, but it's not the sense I get for a lot of people. I don't know if you had any great sense of excitement yourself, Murph. Yeah, well, I, like, I knew the fight was on. Uh, like, I would have seen the sort of the weigh-in pictures on Friday and all the rest. But Did you watch it? I woke up Sunday morning, didn't even check the results. Uh, I had a football game. Someone mentioned it in the dressing room, like, in passing, oh, she won that fight last night. Mm. And I'd literally forgotten that it was on. Yeah. Uh, now, maybe that's being... That's rank un- uh, unprofessionalism on my part. But that's just the reality of it. No, I but mean, as a sports fan, that's obviously... what that, That's the way you experience it. Exactly. And, and like, it's... Others did too. Yeah, like, the, the whole idea of it is that, you know, I, I don't ever need to be told to watch something. Or, you know what I mean? I'm interested in what it's I'm interested in. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's... You know, that that is kind of worrying, all right? Like, the idea... I've I've never, you know... Heard okay, Katie Taylor is fighting this week, this weekend. You know, I wonder will she win or not. You know, like the the presumption is there for better or worse that she's up against someone who's completely overmatched. And it, this was another world champion. Uh, yeah, it should be said. And and yet she was overmatched. Katie was way better. Yeah, but she was she was brilliant in being way better. Do you know what I mean? That's why I'm saying there's not anything more she can do from a boxing no. point of view. Promotionally, of course, she can do more. But as we're saying there, you know, like you can't change a personality entirely. Yeah. So it is. You know, uh, and it like, is funny to see how it goes. Yeah, and if as we've been discussing there, if she's earning six figure sums from these fights, then you know maybe she's not that bothered. Yeah, I, d- I don't want to paint this like Katie Taylor's professional career is a disaster yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Like it's that's just, the uh, important thing, and uh, like, I, like I actually do really believe that that is the important thing here. But the, well, the boast was from her, from her uh, people, from everybody promoting her professional career. She's going to do what for professional boxing, what she did for amateur boxing. Mm. So if that's the boast. While she's made some strides, it hasn't lived up to that. No, well, not yet. You know, like maybe there's maybe there's a change coming down the line. Maybe there is a fight that we can actually, like, all say right. Okay, this is close to a fifty-fifty fight, and that's it. But I mean, I think the the lack of competition for her is the most damaging part of all this. It's not, as you say, anything that Katie can do inside or outside the ring that would make her be someone that she's not. It's pretty cool that she impressed Roy Jones and the Americans so much if only the boxing fans there had got to watch the whole fight rather yeah. than just that 30-40 second snippet or whatever it was mm. now to the rugby and some breaking news to kick things off here Shane Ulster Rugby can confirm that Dan McFarland will take the reins as head coach next season he's currently working with the Scottish national team as assistant coach to Gregor Townsend so he obviously played for Connacht for a long time became their forwards coach went over to um, to Glasgow and f- with Townsend and followed him to the Scottish job so he says uh, the usual kind of quotes about how exciting he is the quote, quote from Bryn Cunningham Ulster Rugby's operations director is that this Dan was our number one candidate so we're obviously very happy to have secured his services what's your reaction to this breaking news? Well, I'm glad they got their number one candidate um, <laughs> you know he. I think he's I think he's uh, a decent track record uh, he's um, had uh, you know success with, with uh as you mentioned there, with um, with Glasgow, um, you know some success or a degree of success with Scotland, and certainly in the way they're you know they've changed their style. Um, first time with a head coaching job, and uh, he's going in, and he'll have his work cut out. But uh, I think uh, you know his CV would suggest that he's a fairly progressive coach, um, you know, not as maybe as big a name as as you would have wanted if you were a maybe a 
uh, an Ulster fan um, and whether that has an impact on the type of players that he can attract, um, you know, that's, that'll be remains to be seen. Shane, he has been a Ford's coach and he was a Ford himself, so that will presumably be the emphasis. Is that relevant, do you think, in that, you know, Ulster, certainly talent-wise, it's mainly stacked in the backs and also just in terms of the way their Fords have combined this year, that's been their main issue? Yeah, but I think if you see what uh, Glasgow did and, you know, actually some of his time at Connacht, but also then what's, what Scotland are trying to do is that really defined role between uh, or, or lack of interplay between fours and backs is, is kind of, you know, rugby is moving away from that. And so I expect uh, the emphasis to be one of integration between forwards and backs. And, and from that perspective, it might be a really good uh, selection. They need to reinforce in their forwards, uh, but they also need to do something else. The idea of you know getting a pack that there's in the next you know year or so that's going to be bullying other sides, um, you know, is going to be difficult. Uh, so what you do then is you look for the other areas that you can you know improve players and, and different areas where you can tag sides, and and one of them is is you know developing that interplay between forwards and backs. So I think it's not a bad you know his his background isn't a bad call for Ulster either. What about the manner of the announcement though Shane after the game against Leinster Bryn Cunningham said that we have got a coach in place he's signed up but we have to wait for a few weeks to announce that we have to res- have respect for each other's situation then rumours started surfacing today that it was McFarland and the Scottish FA uh, Scottish Rugby uh, Association should say uh, announced that he was going to be finishing up with them and now we get the announcement today only two days after we were told it was going to take a few weeks that it actually is this man well, you know, it's it's sort of power for the course at the moment, isn't it, with Ulster? And and I know they're you know they've made changes, and this is a positive move. But there's a lot more, um, I think, analysis to be done uh, by them about uh, about how they uh, how they run themselves as an organisation, because it seems, you know, really higgledy piggledy at the moment. You know, different people are talking. Who's the lead voice? Is it is it Bryn Cunningham? Is it is it Shane Logan? Um, you know what? Uh, you know what do they um, f- feel is 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 the pr- primary voice for Ulster rugby, and what messages are they trying to get across? At the moment, it, it seems very mixed. It seems very blurred, and and whatever the work has to be done um, on the field next year, I think has to be matched by uh, work off the field, or or. You know, that that sort of those behaviours seep through from from the from the backroom team into or or the front office in onto the field as well, and I think it's an ongoing issue that that needs to be addressed by them. They're left now with this game against the Ospreys, which I think isn't on for three weeks. So that's a lot of hanging around for a game you didn't want to have to play. They have to play it to make it into the Champions Cup next year. This is a fifty-fifty, um, a winner-takes-all playoff. How much of an impact is this going to have if they were? to lose that game both on the players that they might be able to attract for next season also the supporters which the sport base is already fractured because of because of Jackson Holding and so on Um, how significant is this game going to be and how tricky is it going to be um, from a motivational point of view I think you know it's not going to affect some some of the deals because you know someone like Jordy uh, Murphy has already been signed you know that that's that's you know going ahead I think it won't impact necessarily them getting one of the Leinster players, either um, Ross Byrne or, or Joey Carberry, uh, but it may impact you know which one of those wants to go or, or almost we, we, whose hand is forced in going up there because that will be an IRFU decision. Um, outside of that, 
I think it becomes very uh, expensive to recruit any decent players because um, if you're not going to play you know, top-class European rugby with the opportunity to potentially win something, which is a big driver for a lot of players, then um, you know, the only imperative really to go to Ulster, especially given the season that they've had on and off the field this year, is money. And then that makes things you know, much more expensive. And factor in again, as you said, like a, fact, a, f- a fractured fan base going to the you know second tier European or not going to the second tier uh, European uh, competition, um, that has an impact on the bottom line as well. So it definitely makes things um, a little bit more awkward, and as I said, potentially much more expensive. Shane, what would your overall philosophy be on, say, Leinster having the biggest population in general, the biggest playing population? probably the best school structure and so on, um, that if they do start to accumulate way more talent than the other provinces, um, how do you redistribute that? Do you think it's leave it up to the player and just let all the talent accumulate in Leinster or should there be a policy in place? I think, um, you know, for really good players, I think um, they they won't want to sit on the bench in Leinster for a, a very prolonged period of time. Um, even if they're having you know, decent success, it also impacts their salary. It impacts their you know, ability p- to play for um, to play for Ireland as well. So all these things become difficult. But what you've got in a situation in, in Leinster at the moment is you've got players that are actually not getting the game for Leinster are right in the mix for for the Ireland setup as well. So that sort of, that doesn't make them want to leave. And I think in some positions, nor should they. Um, and Ireland's kind of tricky in that. Um, one of the big reasons that Munster and Leinster and Ulster and, and, and Connacht maybe to a lesser degree have been successful when they have been successful is because they've had people that really want to play for them. And it's also why Ireland you know, gets their players a little bit cheaper because I know there's tax benefits, but there's also this generation of, you know, you can see it in Munster, you can see it in Leinster, they want to play for, for their team. That's exactly, yeah, and they only want to play for that team. And some of them have compromised their uh, their careers in order to you know stay with their um, province a little longer than they should have. So you know I, I do think you know that there will be you know that there will be organically um, some will realise that there's uh, opportunities elsewhere or they will be better off to pursue opportunities elsewhere. But I think you know there may be there may be requirement for a push as well in some circumstances, and we're kind of you know seeing that situation at the moment in Leinster. I, I think it's very difficult from an individual point of view. You know, to ask a player to go to you know a, a club that they don't really want to be a, at, and the only reason they're we're, they're doing that is in order to you know give themselves an opportunity to play for Ireland. I think under those circumstances, I think um uh, you know I, I think a player should be allowed to go overseas and and, and seek um opportunity elsewhere to a, you know to a really top club. Um, but I do think uh, at the moment there is an issue with 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 um, talent accumulation in, in Leinster. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think you know maybe one of the ways to solve that is sort of what was done with with Connacht for a long time is, is players actually go quite early uh, into these um, other provinces and uh, you know well, with the option to return as well. I think you know that makes a little bit more sense. It was that's, in- a, good, that's a great point because that's yeah. where say Redden and Sean Cronin and these types of players and Flannery real success stories. They went to Connacht re- relatively early. And then went elsewhere again and, and won. Not that you can't win a Connacht, but, you know, they, they sort of get that game exposure and get that muscle memory and all those things early in their career, rather than a 26, 27, feeling like they're pushed out, but sort of uncertain about the decision. Yeah, and yeah, I also as well, I, you know, you've, you've just given those, those examples, and there's actually there's plenty more as well. 
Um, but I can't. I don't think he. I think it's dangerous to, to discount um, the desire that players have when playing for their for their home province. You know, these guys are, and you know, especially the younger guys now. They're seeing their you know their job from from you know nine, ten, eleven, twelve. These kids, they only want to play you know professional rugby, and they really only want to play for the province that they're with. And that goes for Ulster as well, I'm sure. But I'm certain about in Munster and Leinster and and and, and Connacht. And um, so to discount that, um, I think you lose, you potentially lose something. So to be able to give, you know, a, a carrot at, at the other end, and maybe, you know, maybe that's what these players and uh, Jordy Murphy and maybe Ross Burner are thinking about, even at this stage of their career, and saying, you know, there's an opportunity to come back somewhere down the road. But, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want um, to sort of force anyone to go to. Um, you know, to pursue an Irish career, to have to go to a club that they they, they re- didn't really want to go to. Now, there was a big, you know, uh, Barry Murphy. We were speaking about it last week. There is, you know, potentially big opportunity. You know, U- Ulster. You know, they are a, still a big club. They have a big fan base. They have a good stadium. They have, um, you know, they have their finances are in good order. Um, you know, if they can attract. Uh, if they can get over this game in a couple of weeks' time, for one, then they can attract um, some more quality players. Um, their academy actually is, is now starting to generate, or in the process of generating, a few um, um, better players. If uh, you know, if they get in there and, and they sort of turn it around and take a bit of ownership uh, of the team, which I think is difficult on the, coming from the outside in. I think you always need to be driven by your core players, which is on uh, your core, you know, sort of indigenous mm-hmm. players, which is kind of my point. But if they can get in on the on the back of some of those players and and generate something new, then you know you can have a spark in your career and things can things can turn around pretty quickly if you have the right coach and and a few key players in rugby. The climactic play of the Munster-Ulster game was the line-out at the end where Ulster overthrew and our pal Gerbrandt Grobler was the man to catch it and gallop upfield uh, for about 30-40 yards. That'll be his last gallop for Munster, one of the last ones because he's leaving at the end of the season. So I mean, I know you feel, I'm not sure I agree with you, mm. that this is a bad move by Munster. They should have kept him on and maybe had him as a salutary tale for the youngsters well, in Munster. We're not 100% sure whether it's push or pull, but... First of all, based on his performance of the weekend, he should have started against Racing. He was their best forward on the pitch. He's big, he's powerful, he's aggressive, he's vocal. He just looked like a real enforcer on the field, which they could have absolutely done with against Racing. Uh, I think if the damage was done by signing him, now, fair enough, the Irish media missed it at the time, or most of the Irish media missed it. And then in the middle of the season, it became this big story. But I think the damage was done in signing him, the mistake was made then, after that point, then you make the best of it. And I think, say, when he went to Racing, he did interviews about it, the mistakes he made, the impact it's had on his life on and off the field. Um, you can say he did get that contract with Munster, but he's leaving Munster again. Everywhere he goes, the story gets bigger. So there is this, I know he's got to play professional rugby again, but there is this impact on his life and his career. So he can talk about that and just have, you know, just be really open about the whole thing. And then you have somebody here in Ireland who has cheated. It's still very rare in rugby that somebody's done it and then has come back into the game and then be open about it as opposed to everything was so secretive. He's gone now. I'd love to know the full story. Maybe we will get that. But I think there was an opportunity there to A, have a, a really good player and B, just have a, an issue out in the open in Irish sport. Shane, what do you think? I just find it. I just find uncomfortable watching him on the field. I have to say, I just don't, you know, there's something in me. I know 
um, you know, the, the, about second chances and and, and uh, people should be given opportunity. But you know, the the bands are short. Um, I think there is an impact from from what you've done. I think that it's, it's you know, there's a there's a long lasting um, impact or, or development that you can have at a certain time of your year that gives you a big jump on on everybody else. And I have to say, every time I, when I saw him come on against um, uh, in, the, in the racing game, it made me feel a little uncomfortable. So I have to say, I, I disagree. I, I'm I'm not sorry to see him go. I think we all have probably learned a decent lesson, um, you know, and I think it's, it's shown the feeling that you know Irish people have um, with regard to you know performance enhancing drugs and people who, who have used them. And I think the other thing it's it's shaken up as well, and it sort of stuck with me at the time. There hasn't been much mention of it. You know, when um, Philip Brown was speaking about you know the culture that this player had come from, and it was a very different culture than you know the one that we have now that that they have in Ireland that they have in place in, in where uh, he grew up and uh, um, you know the the teams that he was involved in. You know, I think we need to be very very careful when recruiting players from those areas that haven't failed drugs test if that is the culture and, and you know Philip Brown has stated it I'm not going to disagree with him so I think we need to keep a you know, very strong eye on where we get our recruits from in future Well I think that's part of the danger though Shane and maybe part of my point is that oh this bad guy grobbler has gone um, Irish rugby is pure again you know, as, no, as if I, the problem, I, you know, and, and I've noticed that in the English media too. It's this. I know a lot of South Africans, and more South Africans than any other rugby nation, have failed tests. And in recent times, again, Ashley Johnson or Wasp, for example. But I think there's a danger then of going. Well, that's definitely where all the problems are, and we move on. No, I don't think that's the case. I think that it certainly alerted us, you know, and maybe that's the the value we have had from this, you know, sort of whole episode and having having him being in Irish rugby for a year. I think we are slightly more aware of it. I don't think, um, you know, it means that you know us as analysts are going to be less aware or or are going to not pursue a story. I think it's the opposite in case. Uh, in fact, I think it's actually we, we were looking at things a little more. We we're going to look at things more deeply um, because of, 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 you know, for one reason, he kind of the story got to jump on everyone. We didn't find out until, you know, um, halfway through the season. Um, so I think we will look at things a little bit more closely. And I don't think it means that anybody thinks that, you know, the Irish game is, is perfectly clean now or world rugby is clean or, or uh, we don't have to be vigilant. I think it just sort of removes from me. Uh, one level of you know uh, you know un, an unsavory element, and I think if we are going to talk about being um, you know a zero um, tolerance on on drugs, you know I think there's you know there's some there has to be some cost to to it as well you know and a direct cost from from Irish rugby, not just maybe you know sanctioning bodies. Shane, you talked about how uh, putting the store a lot of store and how much people want to play for their home province and stick with that home province, and that's something that John Muldoon did. And um, we did a lengthy enough piece on Muldoon before the game on Saturday, but I did just want to revisit it because I don't think anyone was quite expecting that. Forty-seven ten. I think that's the perfect farewell, is how you'd phrase that if you were a headline writer. Yeah, well, it's kind of you know ridiculous, and uh, you know a ridiculously good performance by. Um, by um, Connacht and and John, but um, also sort of, sort of a kind of ridiculous performance by Leinster in many ways as well. But um, you know maybe that's for a dissection for another day. But um, what a way to finish! And, and you know the amount of times he's pulled on the jersey, the you know the high level of performance that he's always delivered. A very talismanic figure for them, but I think you know more than anything, it stands out uh, and it will forever. And and he has it is, is that uh, Pro Twelve trophy. 
um, which you know, it's it's hard, you know even now you look back on it and you think of what a magical year that was, how unexpected it was. There was good teams. It wasn't a particularly weak year. You know, there were good teams in the competition that year, but they completely changed you know the style of rugby um, that was being played at that time. I think um, they they shocked everyone. They played brilliant, entertaining rugby and were you know totally outclassed Leinster in the final. It was an absolute dream year. And if he did nothing else in his career, never mind of all the other caps, if he did nothing else in his year, uh, in his career, um, you know that would be very, very difficult to top. Yeah, Shane, like you say, that was a shock them winning the league that year, and it would be like us saying, you know, Zebra are going to win the league in four or five years' time. That's where they came from and where they got to in that space of time. Muldoon was a big part of that. But um, I was thinking last week, Kieran Keane, the coach, was giving him some compliments, describing him as earthy and all the rest. But he also talked about his resilience, which is one of those words I heard a lot about Muldoon last week. But I guess there's different types of resilience in that. You know, there's, there's players who are at clubs, say even Leinster, people felt sorry for them before you won in 2009, um, only making semi-finals and, you know, winning the odd league here and there but sticking with it and winning and then there's a guy who's bottomed the league a couple of seasons in a row very few fans just no hope I mean there was no reason to think Connacht would get any better a few years ago but to stick with that in those circumstances is a different type of resilience maybe it is and also it's that's not a nice road you know that's not a nice job and and you know, rugby can be a very rewarding game and it can be brilliant fun and and you get real satisfaction from it if you're winning, but if you're getting pumped every week, you know I, I honestly don't know how you know, so, you know some some players or, or some some teams continue on with that. It's a very very difficult place to be because you're kind of failing every week in your chosen profession, and that was you know you know that was for a long time part of you know John Muldoon's you know career. He you know he he lost a lot of games playing for Connacht, and there was even the ones that they won, they were they were hard fought and, and hard won, and very often not that glamorous. And and until they changed their style. Um, it was um, it was a you know it, was a, it wasn't a type of rugby that you would have watched and gone oh listen I, I want to be part of that because yeah I know they're getting beaten every so often but we're playing great rugby that wasn't the case until the last couple of years when they, when they changed it so you know that sort of you know doggedness to, to to fight through those very dark times and actually have then you know to be able to 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 go through that but somehow then change and and fundamentally change you know what you contribute the way you play and your skill set and i think that's maybe you know that's that's you know what was incredibly impressive for, from him as well the whole thing about you know not you know old dog learning new tricks was was put to bed by you know him and some of his players in that kind of team because mm. you know i would have had him down as a certain type of player and you know uh, you know very dogged you know physical you know decent carrier you know keep you know keep, keeps on going but you know not at the high end of skill level by any manner or means or or player that you would you know have to really give a second thought to when it came to you know holding the inside defender and passing the ball out and or holding uh, keeping um sh- shape inside and and then over the co- course of a couple of years he just started playing the game in a, in a completely different way and that evolution of of um playing style and skill and as an individual, sort of would give hope to a lot of people and a lot of coaches mm. because I think you know after what Connacht did that year and players like him, how they changed. I think um, it's it's made a big difference to teams, and we see it maybe reflected in the way you know some of the way the Scarlets um, um, played their game last year. I think also the way uh, Exeter played their game. All of a sudden, sort of you know smaller teams realise that. You know, there is a different way to compete with the with the powerhouses, and and it's it's based on a high skill level, and 
you know, players that you think, um, you know, are, are one thing can, can all of a sudden become something else. And that's the sort of story of John Muldoon. I'm sure you didn't have him down as a place kicker, though, Shane. He actually apologised afterwards for taking that conversion at the end. If you were a Leinster player, would you be a little bit put out? Ah, no, you can, you know, let the guy, it's his last game, he's got, you know, hundreds of caps, he, you know, he's let, let him do it. You know, it's probably, Leinster deserved a little bit of a, you know, rub their nose in it, they shouldn't be shipping that many points um, against anyone. And I know it was a special day, I know it wasn't Leinster's teammate, but, you know, results like that damage teams, actually, they do. And, in you know, there's, they've got a very big fish to fry in a couple of weeks and, and you don't want that sort of negative energy around um, around the place and you know, one of the sort of hallmarks of teams that do well is and that, that do win trophies is that when they're you know when their second team is out uh, or largely the second team is out, then they, you know, they are successful as well. So, um, no, I, I don't, you know, I don't think Leicester should be worried about that. They should, they should be worried. Some of those players should be worried about their own performance because, and a couple of them, they were miles off. All right, I'm sure that's we're going to come back to in our build up to the Champions Cup final in the next over the next couple of weeks. Shane, great stuff. Thanks, Emil. Thanks, Emil. Good luck for everyone, and here it goes. Denmark, Republic of Ireland. When we look down at the Irish squad, it's not that many names that ring a bell. We have the slight upper hand in these two games. But I'll tell you something, he went down in my estimation when he said that. We have the slight upper hand. I've never heard so much rubbish in my life. Why do we have to listen to that garbage? We have not resorted to that. It's always tough to play any British, British, British team. Can I appeal to the British government to please leave our country? It's always tough to play any British team. A lot of things have been said over the last few days. Some of it slanderous. I mean, I actually was abused by Dane. Abused by Dane as well the night before. Come on, Ken. Is there a Wi-Fi? Uh, actually, we're just still on the 3G. Before we could finish explaining we weren't actually on the Wi-Fi, he goes, Wi-Fi wankers! You're all Wi-Fi wankers! Okay, I think that's just about it for your Monday version of the edition, I should say, of the Second Captain's Podcast. You're okay, Ken? You've recovered from the disrespect shown to you by Connacht stalwart John Muldoon? I would say not forgiven, not forgotten. Okay. Well, recovered mm-hmm. from, but still... Okay, thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Kieran, as well. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. And just before we go, a quick reminder for all of our Irish listeners to register to vote if you haven't already. Tomorrow is the 1st of May. The deadline to register is May the 8th. So just make sure you get your voice heard on the 25th of May on the referendum to repeal the 8th Amendment. Check the register.ie is a good place to start if you happen to be online at the moment. Thanks again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.